Well, if you went out into the middle of the city and asked a hundred different people what love is, you may well get a hundred different answers, right? Part of that is because of what people have been told about love. But most of that is actually because of what people have been shown about love. People believe what they believe about love mostly based on how they have been loved. In some cases, maybe how they've not been loved, which is precisely why Jesus said to his followers, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, you can tell the world, you can tell them all about what it means to be a Christian, but it won't mean much of anything until you show them what it means to be a Christian. And the way you show them is by actually loving each other the way I've loved you. So as followers of Christ, we have to be more than just talk, and yet being a Christian is not solely about just behavior either. Some Christians say the way we make disciples of Jesus Christ is by proclaiming the gospel to the world, while others will say, no, the, the way we make disciples is by living out the gospel in front of them, when actually both of those are true. In fact, uh, both are absolutely necessary. You cannot have one without the other and expect to be a, an effective witness for Jesus Christ in this world because you can, you can tell people what love is all day long. But if your actions don't reflect your faith, then no one will take your faith seriously. And yet you can model the love of Christ to people in how you live your life in a very authentic way that is clearly uh, obvious, clearly felt by the people who you encounter. And yet if you do not couple that kind of living with the actual proclamation of the gospel, if you don't actually tell people about Jesus Christ, they won't magically come to know him on their own. No, you have to tell them about him. You have to tell them that he is the reason you are the way you are, which is also why it's so important that the way you live reflects who you say you are, right? The two go hand in hand. Jesus didn't only say, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He also said, go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, Mark 16, 15. The word proclaim in that verse, by the way, does not mean uh, by how you live your life or by your actions. In the ancient Greek, it's the word keruso. It's the same word that was used to describe a public herald or a public crier. That was the person in a town or village uh, who would stand up and make public pronouncements. It's the same word that was used to describe those who would go out and preach the gospel. So Jesus taught his followers to both live out the gospel, and to preach the gospel. Those two go hand in hand. And as always, Jesus practiced what he preached. When he would enter a town and encounter new people, he immediately showed them the love of God, right? He fed them, he healed them, he counseled them, he comforted them, but he also told them why he was doing all that he was doing. Jesus always proclaimed the truth. He always preached the gospel. And of course, people were often eager to listen to him, not always, but very often because he lived out what he believed. It authenticated what he was telling them. So the fact that the world, when I say that, I mean those who do not follow Christ, the fact that they have many different definitions and interpretations of what love is, 
that really should surprise no one because the world is broken, which means those who do not know Christ, those who have never experienced his love cannot be expected to understand his love. And so what we end up with is a world full of broken people with all kinds of broken ideas about what love is because at the same time, God didn't create a world full of robots, right? He created a world full of human beings with free minds and free wills to think and act and live largely by our own volition, our own choosing, which means people are free to come to their own conclusions about what it means to love and to be loved. And yet, the only hope that they will ever have of knowing what true love actually is, is us. That's it. The, the only chance this world has of knowing what real love is, is by the church first loving them like Jesus first loved us. And then when we proclaim the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit takes over and of course he does what only he can do in the hearts of men and women. That's his part. Our part is simply to love them enough to show them and to tell them what the love of Christ is. And so uh, the fact that the world has you know, all sorts of misguided ideas about what true love is should neither surprise or frustrate us. However, what should both surprise and frustrate us tremendously is the fact that within the church today, there's a lot of confusion about what love is and what it means to share that love with other people. And the, the implications of that confusion in the church reach far beyond just the church. Because if we can't get this straight among ourselves, what hope does the world have of ever understanding it? And interestingly enough, this is just what the Apostle John was facing in the church all the way back in the first century. There were people in the church offering all sorts of new ideas and new teachings about the love of God, and many people in the church were buying into it, which was threatening the entire witness of the early church to the world around them, because if, if they couldn't understand or effectively express that love to one another inside the church, then how in the world would they ever be able to effectively show or tell those outside of the church about the love of Jesus Christ? And of course, once again, as we've seen all throughout this 2,000-year-old letter from John, the portion we're looking at today could not be any more relevant to the church in this generation because much of the church in modern history, certainly as long as, as we've all been here, We've talked a lot in the church about love, and yet I've never uh, personally experienced a time, at least in my lifetime, when the church has been more divided than it is now. All you have to do is turn on uh, social media or read any number of articles by influential church leaders today, and the deep divisions within the church become quite evident quite quickly. Okay, when, when we spend more time and energy castigating each other over political positions and social ideologies than we do actually expressing and living out our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We failed our mission miserably when we're more concerned about having our way in the church than we are with helping each other in the church, serving in the church. We failed our mission when we think more about what we can get from one another rather than what we can give to one another. We failed our mission. 
And facing these same problems in the church early on, John takes the time in his letter here to talk to his congregation about love, both what love is and what we're supposed to do with that love. And I'd say the message couldn't be any more timely for the church in America today as we face a culture, just as these early Christians did, that seems to be salivating over the idea of the church being at war with itself. So... John takes the time here to set the record straight about true love and to send a message to all within the church who are seeking to subvert that message by distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ with their own gospel, one that perverted God's love into something that was uh, self-serving rather than sacrificial, something that was a source of pride rather than humility, something that was dividing the church rather than uniting it. And so John says to them, Guys, you think you know what love is, but you've no idea. And that is to be expected among those who are in the world, but not us, not here. We're supposed to be living examples of the love of Christ. How else, how else will the world know what that even is if they don't see it in us? And so he says to them, this is love. And then he goes on to teach them and us, of course, what he learned firsthand, face to face, from Jesus Christ himself. This is a, a message about love right from the source. And I'd say the church in America today needs this message more than ever because whether you believe it or not, the rest of the world is paying attention to us, which means we're speaking volumes about our faith, whether we realize it or not, not only by what we say, of course, but by what we do, how we act in here, how we treat one another. So let's pick up the letter where we left off last week. We're in 1 John 4, and we'll begin by reading verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So John starts out this section of the letter by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. In the ancient Greek, it literally reads, Those who are loved, let us love. Right? Which in and of itself is just a nice thing to say. But as John continues, he explains why those who are loved actually have no choice but to love each other. Because John says love is from God. And so it stands to reason that those who are born of God and know God, as he says in verse 7, will by nature will love others. Why? Because God is love and it is his spirit who lives inside of us. And I just want to mention here, because there's some confusion about this verse, when John says God is love, he's not making uh, some kind of uh, ontological statement about God being love. In other words, uh, he's not saying that's all that God is is love, like there are another, no other aspects or characteristics of God, but that's the way people will twist this verse to say anything that we construe as love must be God, because the Bible says God is love. No, that, that's actually absurd. Besides which, in, in chapter 1, verse 5, John says God is light. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, he says God is spirit. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says the Word was God, or God is the Word. Right, so which is it, John? Is God light? Is God spirit? Is God word? Is God love? Which is it? Well, the answer is yes. Of course, 
God is all of that and much more. And so to John's point here, when he says God is love, he's saying God is the source of all love. God is the source of love. He's the origin of love. He's the beginning of love, which was very important point for John to make here because of these false teachers who were in the church who had twisted the gospel of Jesus Christ to suit their own ends, called themselves Christians, but changed just enough about the message to lead people away from the true message, the true gospel. There's a, a, a second century collection of writings titled Against Heresies. It's a five-volume work uh, that was intended, among other things, to address the rise of Gnosticism, uh, which was a heretical movement, a, mi a mysticism, uh, really ultimately from Egypt, uh, that was being taught by a man named Serenthus. And we've been talking a lot about that the last few weeks. And you can go back and listen to those recordings if you missed it. But much of what we know about Serenthus and his teachings comes from this five-volume work called Against Heresies, written by a man named Irenaeus. He was one of the early church followers. Uh, and so most of what Irenaeus tells us about Serenthus uh, comes from Irenaeus's mentor, who was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So this information is handed down directly from John, who's trying to counter the claims made by Serenthus and his followers in the church. And one of those claims by Serenthus, uh, a man who was, again, educated by the Egyptians, was, what the, uh, was that the world was not actually made uh, by the primary God, but Serenthus said it was made rather by a certain power that is far separated from the God that we know and serve uh, as Christians. And so if Serenthus could convince people to question the very origins of life, the source of all things, then he could call anything else he wanted to into question, which of course he did. He denied that Jesus was the Christ. He denied the virgin birth. He tried to relegate Jesus as simply a human actor in the gospel story rather than God the Son. And so John, throughout this letter, continues to take the church right back to the beginning to emphasize the point that there is but one God who happens to be the source of all good things, certainly of love itself. And so if we're truly born of God, the one true God who is the source of all things, then his love is a part of our spiritual DNA. It is an essential part of who we are because it is an essential part of who God is. And so if he is in us, then his love is in us. And as we grow, then we will grow in his love, which is also why John says anyone who does not love does not know God. Right? In John's case, he's pointing to these false teachers inside the church that we've been talking about who were convincing many members of the church that they didn't have to live like Jesus or teach like Jesus or love like Jesus because according to them, Jesus wasn't actually the Christ. But they were also dividing the church in the process. They were pitting believers against uh, those who were the very antithesis of love, turning them against each other, believers against believers, and leading them out of the church. And so John said, look, anyone who does not love, which is what all of you are doing, you do not know God. And so despite what these false teachers were teaching, the only way to be able to experience and share real love was to go to the source which was to go to Jesus Christ. This is why those who are of the world, those who are not following Jesus, will give, will give you so many different answers when you ask them what love is. 
because they've never experienced the source of love itself, which means all that they have to go on is whatever the world has given them. And so we have a lot of people around us every day today whose only point of reference when it comes to love is the abusive relationships they've grown up under. And so love is seen as something that must be earned to them, although they've never been able to be good enough to earn it. And so they continue throughout their lives to seek relationships which are abusive because that's all they believe that they deserve. And all the while, Jesus Christ, the source of love, he loves them already without them having to do anything to earn it. Now we know that in the church, but listen, how in the world will they ever know that? if we don't show them. Because the world can't show them. Because the world doesn't know Jesus Christ, the source of love, but we do. This is why John says those who are loved, let us love, because it's our responsibility to show the love of Christ to each other and to the world, right? There are people around us every day whose only point of reference when it comes to love is an emotional tie or a physical connection to another human being. And so that love for them is only as strong as that emotion and only lasts as long as that physical relationship. It's where we get the idea of falling in and out of love. Well, listen, you can't fall in and out of God's love. The Apostle Paul said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor a height, nor depth, nor anything, he said, and else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. You can't fall in and out of that kind of love. But how in the world will they know that? if we don't show them. That's why John says those who are loved, let us love because our lives have become one with the very source of love itself. Let's keep reading verses nine through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So after explaining to the church where real love comes from, the source of love, John says, now let me tell you what that love actually looks like by pointing you back to Jesus Christ and what he did for us because that is the nature of love. That God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which is to say that in love, Jesus Christ sacrificed his own life in place of ours so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty for our own sins. The word uh, propitiation is the Greek word halasmus. It means atonement or appeasement. You see, this is the nature of true love. It's sacrificial always preferring others over ourselves. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way when he wrote, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You see that there's nothing about the nature of true love that is primarily self-serving. No, the, the, the love that comes from God is a sacrificial love that always seeks to build up, to encourage, to support others, even when a hard word or a rebuke is what is needed. And at times it is. But listen, if, if that rebuke is actually from God, then it will always be given in love. Okay? All real knowledge, all real knowledge of God will always be expressed in the love of God. You can just tuck that one away in your heart. All real knowledge of God will always be expressed in the love of God. Ian Howard Marshall said it this way, a person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. Right? Which is why we, we really need to be brutally honest with ourselves as Christians before we express ourselves to other people. In other words, think before you speak. Because if what you're expressing to someone else is not done in love, listen, if what you're expressing to someone else is not done in love, then it is not from God. I don't care how much truth you think there is in whatever you're saying. If it is not spoken to that person in genuine love, then what you're saying is not from God. So if someone comes to you and says something to you about someone else, in fact, I know people who have gone to other people and said things to them about me. I get it. Maybe things they don't like about me. And then that other person will come to me invariably and say, hey, I just thought you should know what this other person is saying about you, right? Has that ever happened to you? Probably. My first question is usually this, was whatever they said to you, was it said in genuine love? And I'm talking about love for me. Because first of all, if it was spoken in love, then it should have been spoken directly to me. And if it was not said in genuine love for me, then what they told you I don't care what it was. It was not from God. And actually, what you should do then is in genuine love for that person, you should rebuke them for speaking evil about someone else. Why? Because all real knowledge of God, if it comes from God, then it will be expressed in the love of God. So if someone comes to you and tells you something, look, about someone else, you should ask them, hey, why are you telling me this? First of all, why aren't you telling them instead of me? And secondly, what's your motivation for saying it at all? Because if the motivation is not real love, then what you're saying is not from God. Here's why this matters. Because the fact is we all have people in this world who don't like us so much, right? That's inevitable. Uh, it's unavoidable. And we should all be mature enough to handle that without completely coming undone. I get it. It's a part of life. There's a much bigger issue here. When we as Christians talk about each other disparagingly, when we tear each other down, we're destroying our witness because we're claiming 
to be Christians. We're claiming to be the people who have the very source and nature of love living inside of us, while at the same time, we're expressing the very opposite of that nature of God's love for one another. It's the height of hypocrisy. We need to be very careful, guys, about what we say about each other on social media. I just, I almost can't turn it on anymore. And listen to believers ripping each other to shreds. We need to be careful about what we say to each other uh, about other people. In fact, in fact, we need to be careful about what we say about each other in private because that too is a reflection of what is inside of us, either the nature of God's love or our own sinful nature, the very thing that Jesus died to save us from, to free us from. Let's keep reading, verses 12 through 18. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So he explains the true source of love, and then he explains the nature of love to the church and as John begins and ends this section with the perfecting of love. The word he uses for perfected is the Greek word teleao. It has more to do with uh, really completeness and maturity than it does with perfection as we think of the word perfect today. And the way that John says our love will then become complete and mature is by abiding in God. And uh, that's actually the key to be honest, to all spiritual maturity for the Christian. And we just spent two weeks recently talking about that. But here, John explains to his congregation that there are certain aspects of a person's life, if they're a follower of Christ, there are aspects of a person's life which is evidence that love is actually being perfected or made complete in them. So two things. First of all, he says, if love is being perfected in us, then A, we will confess that Jesus is the Son of God, Right? We talked about it last week, the fact that these false teachers in the church were telling people that Jesus was not the Christ, that he was not the Son of God, which meant those who were following this new teaching stopped confessing that Jesus was the Son of God. They stopped confessing their allegiance to and love for Christ. But if our love is truly being made complete, then our willingness to and practice of confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we unashamedly follow him, in other words, actually going out and telling other people in the world about him, that practice, if his love is being made complete in us, that practice will become a matter of course in our daily lives as the opportunity arises. Charles Spurgeon once said, Look through all the pages of history and put to the noblest men and women who seem to still live this question, who loves Christ? And at once, up from the dark dungeons and cruel racks, there arises the confessor's cry, we love him, 
And from the fiery stake where they clapped their hands as they were being burned to death, the same answer comes, we love him. If you could walk through the miles of catacombs at Rome and if the holy dead whose dust lies there could suddenly wake up, they would all shout, we love him. The best and the bravest of men, the noblest and purest of women have all been in this glorious company. So surely you are not ashamed to come forward and say, put my name down among them. You see, if we are truly growing in the love of Christ, then we will be compelled to confess him before those who do not know him rather than shrinking back when we find ourselves in the company of unbelievers. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. He said that in the context, by the way, if you read that whole chapter, of living without fear, which is exactly what John is doing here. As he continues, he says, if love is being perfected in us, then not only will we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, but we will live without fear. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, okay? You will often, if you're paying attention, you will often find that the people who seem to struggle the most with loving others are often the same people who struggle the most with fear. Why? It's because the absence of God's perfect love and the presence of tremendous fear are directly connected. And yet the solution if you're struggling with fear is not simply to decide that you're going to try and love people more. No, the, the remedy for fear is abiding. It's abiding in him. Remember, John said, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. You see, the answer to fear is to draw near to Christ and then to remain there to stay there, to abide in him. And one of the byproducts of abiding in him is that his love abides in us. And where his love abides, fear cannot abide. It has to go. John said there's no fear in love, but perfect love, what? It casts out fear. This is one of those areas for the followers of Christ that is the most important for us to master. And yet simultaneously, I think, one of the most difficult for us to master, at least in this culture, taking the time today to abide, to draw near to God and actually stay there, to remain close to him throughout the day, day after day. It seems almost an impossibility for most of us because for so many, our schedules simply will not tolerate the kind of undiluted periods, you know, periods of focused meditation that abiding requires. We've, we've become slaves to our telephones. We've become slaves to our calendars, slaves to our computers, slaves to our kids' activities to the point that we've convinced ourselves that these other distractions are so meaningful that we've allowed them to take the place of time spent listening to the Spirit of God as we meditate on the Word of God. And then we wonder why we're so full of fear and anxiety when life dumps something unexpected or unpleasant on our laps. This is why sometimes when really difficult trials befall us, it is at times actually the grace of God at work in our lives. Because often those hard times will drive us to our knees before God where we're almost forced 
to stop everything else and abide in him. And it is in those very times in our lives when his love is perfected in us. Look, I know we can't, we can't all quit our jobs and spend 10 hours a day praying. I get it. We can't check out from life and everyone around us and just read the Bible all day long. Wish we could. We can't. Here's the thing. God doesn't expect us to. In fact, we're supposed to be engaged with the culture around us, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you for most of us, a significant portion of what we allow to occupy our eyes and ears and brain space every day is not nearly as pressing or important as we think it is. You just imagine if we only carved out one extra hour a day to draw near to God, what kind of difference would that make in our lives? I promise you the, the difference would be profound because every moment we spend abiding in him, his love is being made perfect in us. Let's finish the chapter, verse 19 to the end. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John takes these last three verses to summarize really the entire section of the letter where he says, whoever loves God must also love his brother, which has been the theme throughout this portion of the writing, which is, of course, the obligation of love, okay? Love for God and love for other people, those two things are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. It's scripturally irreconcilable to say you love God and while you hate someone, your fellow man. What in the world are we doing in this culture today? Claiming to be Christians and what's going on in, around our country, people hating people. What in the world? John says, I'm sorry, it's a lie. When he says over and over and over again that we must love one another, by the way, he's primarily here talking about fellow believers, fellow Christians, which is not to say that we don't have to love unbelievers because certainly we do. It's simply the focus on this particular teaching by John that we must love our fellow Christians. He calls us brothers over and over again because again, Jesus said that's exactly how the world will know that we are who we say we are by our love for each other in the church, which he said, by the way, at the Last Supper, in fact, John's entire teaching here in this portion of the letter mirrors Jesus' commands at the Last Supper, his final instructions to John and the other disciples where he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are to love one another, John 13, 34. That was a command given to the church just as John's teaching to love one another is given to the church. It's one of the many reasons, I'll just tell you, that I love our church so much because you're so good at loving each other. And it shows, I want you to know, it shows to folks who come here for the first time. I've asked people for years since we started the church, why do you love Upcountry Church? Why do you keep coming back to Upcountry Church? What's the thing that drew you to Upcountry Church? And people love the music and they love our kids' programs and they love the preaching. They love lots of things, but the number one thing that everybody says is the way that I feel when I come into this church, the way that people make me feel. It shows 
the way you love each other. It shows to people who meet you out in town and you tell them about your church family, your brothers and sisters. It shows when you go on social media and talk about how much you love this local church, as so many of you do. I want to scream when I see it on Facebook. It makes me so happy. The people beaming about their church and about their church family. I'm so humbled by you. The way you love each other, I have a lot to learn from you. Don't ever stop doing that, okay? I don't care how big this church gets, what we ever, God allows us to do. Don't ever stop loving each other that way. It's so important, and not only to this church, it's important to our community. All these people out here every day that don't know Jesus, because our culture, when it comes to understanding and defining and expressing love, listen, our culture is spinning out of control right now. Fear is rampant in our society. Just look at what's going on. And of course, not everyone who witnesses the love on Christ, the love of Christ on full display here at our church will become followers of Christ. Not everyone, but I'm telling you, there are so many who will. And of course, not everyone uh, who comes in here will be affected the same as everyone else. But if they could but witness that love, the true and genuine love of Christ among us in this church. But there's one more thing you need to know as I close. Because I would be remiss if I didn't tell you. When you decide to truly love other people with the love of Christ, it will always cost you something. Truly loving others will always cost you something. It is never free. And rarely, it's easy. Loving people can at times be a lot of work without much reward. Sometimes loving people is thankless. Sometimes loving people is exhausting. It means putting others first. It means putting up with others at times when you'd rather be doing something else. It means investing your life into other people's lives even though they won't always return the favor. Right? In short, loving other people, it means laying your life down for them. You understand, that is the definition of love that eludes this world today. Because we live in an every man for himself kind of world right now. Where everyone seems to be fighting for themselves instead of fighting for one another. Where people care far more about what they can get rather than what they can give. Where people have become so starved for true love real love, the kind of love that only comes from Jesus Christ that they're turning to every possible aversion known to mankind in order to try and satiate this burning within themselves that cannot be satisfied outside of Jesus Christ in his love. But listen, how in the world will they ever know that if we don't show them how will they know that if we don't tell them? How will they ever know what true love is if they don't see us laying our lives down for each other first? The apostle said, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your love for us. It is a love like no other. In fact, everything else that we call love in this world is nothing more than a shadow of the real thing which only comes from you. Yet there are lost people groping around in the darkness searching for a version of love that can never satisfy, that can never satiate the need that all human beings have to be loved and to love with the authentic love that only you can give. But there's no way for them to ever know what that true love is if we, your people, if we don't show them if we don't go out and tell them. And doing that isn't going to be easy, but you never called anyone to easy. You called us to lay our lives down for one another and to show others what, what that looks like. That's what true love is. It's sacrificial. It's giving our lives for each other. We can't do that on our own. We certainly can't do it by sheer willpower or good intentions. No, we need your spirit of God to fill us and guide us strengthen us for the calling that is before us with each new day that the world would see and hear and ultimately know the love that only comes from you as they see and hear and know us your church as we love each other in here help us to do it help us to do it well for one another yes and of for those who have yet to become a part of this family, but you've destined to be so. And so we just simply thank you now in advance for all that you're doing in the hearts of men and women and what you're doing right here in and through us. We give you praise and honor now, even as we pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I need to let you go, but there's just a, two little quick things we're going to do. because it's time to put our money where our mouth is. Everybody knows what's happening in Texas. Uh, the hurricane victims are suffering. We know people there. I'm sure many of you know people there. Our organization, the, the AG Fellowship, uh, supports a ministry called Convoy of Hope. We just sent a fleet of tractor trailers down there. They're on the ground doing the hard work right now taking supplies and caring for people. They are supported by churches like Upcountry Church. So ushers, if you would come, we're gonna take up an offering. And I want us to ask you to be as generous as you can. Every single penny of what you give in this offering will go directly to Convoy of Hope to buy supplies and med medical attention and whatever is needed there in Texas. If we can't go, let's reach out through our pocketbooks and help the Convoy of Hope do what they're doing, okay? Father, thank you again for the opportunity to give in this offering. We ask that you would, uh, Lord, stretch it as far as it can go and touch as many lives as possible for those who are hurting, that they would feel your loving hand through us, even through Upcountry Church now, as we reach through this ministry, God, to touch those who are suffering right now. Do what only you can do, and we'll do our part right here and now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One other thing, guys, as the ushers are taking up the offering, um, we're going to take a moment to pray for Brenda Cochran. Uh, this is what it, I just preached about. This is where the rubber meets the road. Okay, Brenda has been struggling with some heart issues, and she's going in for some more tests on Thursday that could be really good news or really hard news.
Um, you can imagine, some of you have been there, the internal struggle going on right now. And I know there's a lot of unknown for Brenda and, and for Rich, a lot of uncertainty. That's, that can be such a breeding ground for fear. Jesus Christ is in us. He's bigger than all of that. He conquered all of that. There's nothing that he cannot overcome. Brenda, come on up here. We're going to anoint her with oil. I'm going to ask you if you would to come. Certainly our elders, our pastors, anyone that would like to help me lay hands on Brenda. For those of you who are not coming, I want to ask you to stand and stretch your right hand if you would toward her. It's a very biblical thing to do. All throughout scripture, the right hand is symbolic of power and blessing. We are going to reach out right now and in faith, join our hearts and our minds together and ask God to do what only he can do in Brenda's body and in her life and bring complete healing. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now. You are our hope. You are our defender. You are our king. You are our deliverer. You are our victory. And you are our healer. And it is to you and you alone now that we turn and ask you to do what only you can do. As we agree now in faith, your word says in James 5, if any of us is sick, to call the elders of the church to anoint with oil to lay our hands on that person and pray. We're doing that now, God. As you've said, the prayer of faith will raise him up and make him well. Right now, we're asking you to touch Brenda's body. We don't understand, and up to now, the doctors haven't really understood exactly what's happening. You understand it perfectly well. There is no question or confusion. You're not wondering what's going to happen next, for you have mapped it all out ahead of time. And so we're asking you now, as we agree in faith, to heal Brenda completely in the name of Jesus Christ. Touch her with your supernatural hand of healing. Make her whole, and we will stand here and give you all of the glory and honor that you deserve when we can testify to her healing. Thank you, Father, in advance for what you're doing right now in her life. We give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor for it that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I love you guys so much. I need to let you go. I'll see you next Sunday right back here. Come and bring about eight or ten friends with you. God's doing awesome things. I love you so much. I'll see you soon. <laughs>